Well, Pastor Dave, I just wanted to take a few moments to uh, talk about your upcoming sabbatical. So you're about to go on your sabbatical, and I learned that sabbatical, it's like the Sabbath. It's the seventh period. It's the seventh day of rest, the Sabbath is. And so sabbatical is a time of rest for pastors and a time to draw closer to God. So you're about to go on the sabbatical. When, I, I understand it, sometime this summer, when are you leaving? First thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow morning. Yes, like uh, I don't think I'm ready yet, but it looks like that's what's going to be happening. So, so no Chipotle lunch sometime uh, Tuesday afternoon for you and me. Uh, nope, nothing like that. <laughs> okay. So where do you go tomorrow morning? That's exciting. So I uh, uh, pick up the rental car first thing in the morning, and I drive to Abiquiu, New Mexico, in the morning, and I will be there in uh, this uh, Christ in the Desert Monastery there for a full seven days, basically living like they do. So you're going to be in a monastery for seven days, and is it is it the monastery that I think of from the movies where you're the people are in robes and you're not talking to anyone yes. all day? And I don't know if I'm, I have to wear you, one of those too. I'm like, oh, I hope not. I don't but think I don't you're know. allowed to take the robe with you. By the way, <laughs> it's not like a hotel where you can take it with you. Yeah. So what what is your life going to be like during the week? So uh, this is a Benedictine monastery, so they're very structured with their time and. I, from what I'm, t- you can actually, and your, if you go to your the, your sermon notes at MyGrace.Church, I've given you a little bit of information, including what their daily schedule looks like. In case you want to see it, it's crazy. They like get up at four o'clock every morning, right out on the dot, and they start worshiping. Every minute of the day is structured and planned. So, I don't know what this is going to be like, but it's going to be quite a ride. So you're starting at four in the morning, but you don't know you don't know if each day is the same, and you don't know what you'll be doing throughout the. Every day. every day is the same, and part okay. of it has, there's work to be done each day. I don't know what that, but basically you get assignments every morning okay. of what you'll be doing that day. So I don't know what I'll be doing. I just know that I'll be working part of the time, studying part of the time, praying, worshiping, okay. and kind of following on with them. Sometimes I get to talk, sometimes I don't. So, Okay, yeah. well, that'll be really interesting, I'm sure. What do you hope to get from all that? What, what is your takeaway or your, your goal in terms of what you take away from that experience? That's a good question. So this whole thing started a year ago as a result of me applying for a grant with the Lilly Foundation. And the grant was around trying to, I would like to be able to come to understand over sabbatical how we can learn from some of the practices of the great church fathers like St. Benedict, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Um, Ignatius. They had these lives that... So Im- they were so impactful from the people around them that people continue to try to follow God in the way they did even to this day. And trying to figure out how do we apply some of their, their spiritual disciplines, some of their practices into our day-to-day lives as busy American suburban Christians in Oro Valley. Yeah, so. they certainly didn't have, to, they didn't have to deal with what we deal with in terms of the instant communication with cell phones, etc. But I'm sure they had other pressures. And so it's trying to take their disciplines into our modern day life. Yeah, and, and Tim, what, what most people don't realize, what I didn't even realize until I started getting into this, is how different different monasteries are. I, I just thought, well, if you're a monk, you're a monk. You just all do the same stuff, right? But they are so radically different. As I'm looking at these three people in particular, their lives could not have been more different. St. Benedict, with, this is a Benedictine monastery I'm going to next week. It's all about structure in worship and time with God, every minute is planned. You don't go away from the monastery for any reason. If you do, you have to come and repent before you enter back in. I mean, it's very, it's all about following this path to holiness. And but it's but it's in one place. In one Saint place, Benedict, you don't leave. Yeah. Benedictine monasteries where you were at one place and just stayed there. You're assigned to that place for life. You never leave. And so you're doing that for the first week, and then what are and then. 
what are the other chunks of your sabbatical? What, what's the next stage for you? And can you give us a little bit about the timelines and the places and, yeah. and the, the saint that you'll be kind of modeling after? So, uh, so I'll be there a week, then I'll come back. I'll finish up here at Grace over about a week and a half. And then my wife, and Teresa, my wife Teresa and I and Isaac will be flying off to start sabbatical. We'll be basically um, we'll be in the Holy Land for two weeks, and then we'll be in different places in Europe, learning about these different saints and how they live their lives. Actually, where they started their monasteries, talking with the people who do this as a part of their day-to-day lives, and as well as just having some a lot of downtime. Okay, um, that's good. So, Teresa, you're not going to be in New Mexico at the monastery. With a week of quiet? Okay, fair enough. Um, but you will be in Europe, in the Holy Lands, you yes. and Isaac. Wonderful. That's right. And so in addition to that study, you're going to have some downtime too, or some family yeah. relaxation time? Yeah, so we'll be spending a lot of time in Italy, so a lot of time in Spain. One of the things I'm excited about that my wife is not is that we'll be there for the opening day ceremonies for the running of the bulls in Pamplona, which I think is awesome. I can't imagine. I want to go run with them. I think that'd be pretty cool. But Please don't run with the bulls. <laughs> don't do that. When you mentioned that first service, I could see everyone looking up in this direction like, don't do that. <laughs> Come back home. You can watch it on TV or YouTube or yeah. something. Um, okay, so you're going to be in... Europe and the Holy Lands, and then what's the last stage of, of your sabbatical? Yeah, so the, my, our family is together for the big chunk, but on the front end and the back end are these bookends where I'm alone, and the first is at the monastery, and the last part is when I'm doing this pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago across northern Spain. Okay, and so you've mentioned, so those are the three sections, New Mexico, the Holy Lands, and then the Camino de Santiago, and the first monk or the first saint that you were following is St. Benedict. And then who are the other two? St. Francis of Assisi. Okay. And um, St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius. Okay. And, and tell us a little bit about St. Ignatius and the Camino de Santiago. What will that be like? Yeah, so um, St. Ignatius, what I'm learning, he, he was very, very different from Benedict. St. Ignatius, he was a military guy from in Spain. He felt a call of God. He put down his sword and he basically started following after God with all of his heart. The book that he wrote on the spiritual disciplines is still being published today, 500 years later, and being used by people. Uh, and he founded the Jesuits, which is, I mean, that's Father Kino, who basically had a huge impact in the desert southwest. He was a Jesuit. Very different from the Benedictines who stay cloistered behind walls all the time. They are always out. They're always doing mission. They, believe, they always believe, following Ignatius, that they're to make a kingdom difference, to use our language in. So they were very much about that. And St. Francis was different than the other two entirely in that he was all about loving radically the people who are around you. And so, I mean, when you, think of, when you think about Mother Teresa, she wasn't a Franciscan, but she was about the closest thing to it. She, she actually founded her own order. But when you look online, you will find all kinds of stuff that she wrote in her lifetime where her life was kind of modeled by St. Francis because St. Francis believed give everything away to other people, love people radically, even the least of these, and God will use you. So Great. Okay. And so for the last section of your trip, when you're on the Camino de Santiago, that's a walk, right? That's a yes. pilgrimage. And how, how long is that time period? And can you tell us a bit about that, kind of the mechanics of that? How long will you be out there? And you'll be alone. Teresa and Isaac won't be with you during that time. Correct. So I put them on a plane. I, I get dropped off at the French border with Spain and I just, with a backpack, and I just start walking. And I, it'll be a 550-mile journey. 
across northern Spain. In fact, if you look on your online sermon notes, you can actually see the route there across northern Spain. It's one that's been followed by Christian people for over a thousand years. Um, people in the 8th century started following this path to go to Santiago de Compostela. And so I'll be walking. I'll, I'll be alone, but I won't be alone because there are 400,000 people who do this people thing. Do it all Christian the time. people who do this every year. Okay. And so I'll be walking alongside people from Asia, several people, many people from Europe. There are people from Africa who do mm. this on a regular basis, Latin America. And so I'll just be trying to figure out how to talk to them, I guess, and, <laughs> and walking alongside them. How long of a period is that? It's over a month's time. Okay. Okay. From late July to late August. Okay. Well, we talked about it a little bit in first service, and I'll say the same to you. If you have, if you have questions about Pastor Dave's experience before he goes, he's going to go away and then come back a little bit. Use your uh, hello cards in your, in your uh, bulletins, and you can jot those down, and we'll see if, if we can't get an answer back to you. And then um, what do you think are going to be the, the benefits that we as a church community, we can't go on the trip with you all, but we can be certainly praying for you and thinking about you. But then when you come back, what can we gain from your time away? I think that God has foreordained this whole thing. The timing of everything had, could not have, I could not have planned this if I wanted to. The whole gift of this grant and the timing of everything with what's happening in the life of our church. I believe that God's going to use this to help teach me and hopefully I can transmit to you how we can take some of these Christian practices that have been so life-transforming for people in centuries past and are still today and try to figure out how we apply those to 21st century Christianity in America. But beyond that, you've heard me share this here in recent weeks uh, as we've been going through this faith series. I have no doubt in my mind Grace is getting ready to go through a major, major change. Maybe one of the biggest it ever has gone through. And I believe God's been putting on my heart this passion for outreach, that God's calling us to be a community that loves our community well. Um, and so when I, over this summer, I'm going to be spending a lot of time praying, reading, learning how to basically lead us in a culture shift where, I mean, we've always, we've always loved our community and we've always been doing outreach, but right. I think once we realize the, the scope of this, that we're going to embark on together and how we're going to be using all of our gifts and talents to truly make a difference in people's lives, that's when it's going to really hit us. And I want to make sure this is well organized and this allows people to use the gifts and talents God's used them, given them to really make a difference. Yeah, it seems that, that you do sermons on at times on the busyness and how we have to unplug from the instant access we have to information and things like that. So having this time away for you to unplug a bit and, and being able to communicate that to us so that we can then go out into the communities, it does sound like God is working through you to benefit all of us. Yeah, I, I think this fall is going to be one of the most exciting times in the life of our church. But I'm really looking forward to, I may even cheat and actually listen to Dwayne's messages online because I love that man. He has had such a huge impact in my life over the years. You are going to be so blessed by this man and Debbie DiBernardi as well when she does some preaching. Their ministries are pretty powerful. Great. Okay, so you mentioned them. If, if any of us are feeling like we are in need of pastoral care, and you're going to be gone. Um, Pastor Brian, of course, is here, and Pastor Dwayne and Pastor Debbie. Yeah. Uh, tell us how we can best communicate any issues or needs we have. With Dwayne and Debbie team sharing this role covering for me, they have met, we've just created an email address called pastor at gracetucson.org. Really easy to remember. If you have any pastoral need that comes up, just shoot it to them, and they will be working together to respond back to you right away. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Will you pray with me now? 
Dear Father, thank you so much for bringing us together today to hear this message, to hear what you are doing in the lives of Pastor Dave and the Hillis family. Give them time to rest. Give them time to draw closer to each other and closer to you. We are grateful that you have blessed them with this opportunity, and then we receive the blessing when they return. So we ask, Lord, that you give uh, care and protection over this family, to give them blessings along their way. And we thank you for the blessings of Pastor Dwayne and Pastor Debbie and Pastor Brian, who will be caring for us and pastoring to us in, in Pastor Dave's absence. Thank you, Lord, for all that we have here, everything that you have um, allowed to happen and, and worked through us as a community for the Space for Grace campaign. And um, we're grateful for you for the life of this church, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you are putting this burden on our hearts as the leadership of grace to learn how to love our community more, learn how to love them well. Lord, I pray that even as I'm gone, that you will be putting a heart, a burden uh, on every person in this room for ways that you perhaps are calling them to love those who live in their neighborhoods, at their places of work, places we go to the gym, the places we go grab coffee. Lord, help us to see how we can love our community well and use our gifts, our talents, our passions for people to truly make a difference in the lives of others. Lord, I pray that you, are, um, that you will just use this time to prepare all of us for what you have for us in the future. Lord, I pray for this time now as we go into the Word for a few minutes. God, I ask that you would be with me as I unpack Joshua chapter 22, the next part of our series today. Lord, I ask that you would just help us to hear very clearly what it is that you are saying to each one of us in our own lives about this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, again, good morning. So we are in a series of messages called By Faith, right? We have been for the last few weeks. And we've been basing this series off of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. Each week, we have talked about how to live by faith and see our faith walks grow right? But have you ever thought that there are ways that we can hurt or hinder someone else's faith walk along the way? I mean, it's true that everyone has their own walk with God and everyone has to own their own walk with God. And it's true that we choose, it's true with how we choose to live for God, but it's also true in how we choose to treat other people and how that can impact others. So I'm going to just jump right into Joshua chapter 22 this morning, starting in verse 10. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to Joshua 22. Uh, and again, if you don't have a Bible, but you have your smartphone or tablet with you, just go to mygrace.church and click on the sermon notes tab there, and you can follow along with us this morning. This passage, I believe, says so much to us today about the human condition. This tendency that we all have when we are hurt to react to, to hurt others, and even to be judgmental sometimes. Sometimes we see things that seem obvious, but we can tell ourselves stories to explain them. But as we're going to see today, sometimes our perception of reality isn't always perfectly true. So are you there? Joshua 22? Let's start looking this morning at verse 10. It says, But while they were still in Canaan, and when they came to a place called Galilith near the Jordan River... The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh stopped to build a large and imposing altar. 
The rest of Israel heard that the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built an altar at Galilee at the edge of the land of Canaan on the west side of the Jordan River. So, it says in verse 12, the whole community of Israel gathered at Shiloh and prepared to go to war against them. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment. Maybe when you hear this, you're thinking, Dave, what, what just happened? <laughs> what is that all about? I confess to you, when I read that there was a time when I was preparing for this series and I actually just read through the whole book of Joshua at one sitting to try to get con, kind, of, kind of get context. And I remember reading all the way from, from Joshua chapter 10 these stories over and over again about how God's people lived by faith. They lived in obedience to God's will and God was blessing them. God was using them to stop all kinds of wickedness that the people in these, these lands were living in and were involved in. I mean, these people were burning their kids on altars to gods that they had uh, created for themselves. And they were, these people in these, these lands were refusing to submit to the one true God that they saw at work in the lives of the Israelites. Now, at the beginning of chapter 22 here, if you, if you can notice there from your, from your Bibles, what you see in the beginning of that chapter is that Joshua calls up these three tribes. And I'm going to put a map on the screen for just a minute so I can explain a little bit of this to you. There are these three tribes on the east side of the Jordan River that cuts right through north and south, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben that we're talking about here. And when you read up until this point in Joshua, what you see is that they came in to conquer this land from the east to the west and as they got ready to cross the Jordan the first time, these three tribes said, well, we want the land on the east side. And then all the other nine tribes like, well, you can't just quit. You can't just stay here now because we're, you've got to go with us and you've got to help us conquer all this land. Well, they commit to doing that with uh, these other nine tribes. So Joshua, at the beginning of chapter 22, he's thanking these three tribes and saying, thank you for sticking with us to the end. Thank you for not quitting and just staying in, this la- in the land that we had conquered on the first end of our time together. You've done everything that God's commanded you to do. You've followed my leadership well, Joshua says. And he says, you're free to go. You're free to go and settle now in your own lands. The fighting is over. We're all done here. And they send these three tribes off with their blessing. And so these three tribes are getting ready to cross back over this massive river, the Jordan River at that time. And just before they do, it says here in this part of the passage today, they build an altar. No big deal, right? They're just, what's the problem here? They're just building an altar. Why would just them doing this one thing make these other nine tribes so upset that they want to start a civil war and kill their brothers and sisters who have been fighting alongside them all this time. What's going on? Well, they had an understanding from years past that there was only to be one altar. God had declared long ago when they started coming into this land and seeing all these people living and building all these altars around and sacrificing their kids on them, God said to them, you will not live this way. You'll have one altar and you are to sacrifice there and you're to ask for repentance of your sins there. But just as there's one true God, there will be one altar. And so the rest of the Israelites are assuming here that these three tribes have just totally abandoned God's law and just thumbed their nose at God. Now that the fighting is over, they're just doing whatever they want to do and they're breaking God's law. And as you might expect, nothing's changed in human nature over the centuries. Bad news travels fast, right? So... Before you know it, I mean, all nine of these tribes, these, these people have been talking and they get themselves whipped up into such a frenzy that they are ready to, they're gathering together and they're getting ready to declare war 
on their brothers and sisters on the other side of the river. What do you think is missing here so far in this story? Do you see it? How many of you would say it's obvious to me what's missing right here at this point in the story? Raise your hands. Any of you? There's a very few hands. I, I heard it just a minute ago. They're talking to each other. They're talk, the nine tribes are talking among themselves, but they're not talking to anyone who actually built the altar in the first place, right? To understand why, right? You know, my grandmother had a tremendous impact on my life. She, if, of all the people who shaped my life early on, she probably had the biggest impact she was a strong, godly woman. She was a journalist in her early years, but later in life she became a pastor of interim churches without one for years. And she was just an amazing role model for me in so many ways. But I had this one random memory that stuck in my brain from my childhood of one particular day when we were all gathered at my grandparents' house and all the family was there except for my aunt. And my grandmother was just ripping into my aunt. Up one side and down the other. I mean, my grandmother was just tearing her to pieces, talking about all the bad stuff she was doing, judging her character. And she went on for several minutes. And when my grandma finally stopped to take a breather for a moment, my grandfather said something. Now, my grandfather, he was about the calmest, most level-headed person I ever knew as a kid. And when she finally stops to take a breath for a moment, he looks up, and he says, well, honey, you know, she always speaks so highly of you. And that was all he said. And the whole room just burst out into laughter. And I'm paying, like, what in the heck is going on here? My grandmother gets so upset, she throws the arm down to her lazy boy chair and she runs out of the room in a huff. My grandfather didn't have to say another thing in that moment. And it's funny how something as silly as that can get stuck in our brains as kids, right? But that had such an impact on me. It taught me early on a lot about talking, about talking bad about others, about rushing to conclusions, about judging others and assuming the worst about people without, before actually sitting down and talking to them about what's going on. My aunt only lived a mile or two down the road from the rest of us. We all went to the same church. We did life together. But my aunt had no idea my grandmother was even upset with her. My grandmother had witnessed some things that had caused her to draw some conclusions about my aunt without ever first actually sitting down and getting her perspective, the one perspective that she needed the most. Now, they're all gone. My grandparents have gone to be with the Lord. My aunt has. But I started to learn from them that day that trusting God involves trusting people who are also committed to trusting God. Assuming the best in them until proven otherwise. I'm going to say that again. Trusting God, having faith in God involves trusting people who are also committed to trusting God. Assuming the best until they give us a reason to be proven otherwise. Every day, the misunderstandings people have with each other cause conflicts, strain relationships, and worse. And not every conflict is based on a misunderstanding. I get that. But the truth is, you can, never know, you can never know what someone, what's, what the story that's really going on in a situation until you actually sit down and talk to the person on the other side, right? And sometimes it's something as simple as 
not seeing the best in others or not opening up the doors to honest communication. And that can hurt. It can stunt other people in their faith journeys. It can even hurt our own faith journey. But there's some scriptures that really speak to me about this, including the very first verse in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 says that we are blessed when we don't jump in and mock others or put ourselves in a seat of judgment or criticism over others. There's also a section of verses in Romans 14 that talks about when we make snap judgments and we condemn people even when we think we have all the information that we need. But I love how 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 puts this. It says, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and it endures every circumstance. The contemporary English version says it really powerfully as well. It says, love is always supportive, loyal, hopeful, and trusting. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. It trusts the best in others until you have a clear reason to be proven otherwise. And particularly with, when it involves other believers who have made a conscious decision to follow Jesus in life as you have. Trusting God involves trusting people too. Trusting them until proven otherwise. You know, I love what Proverbs has to say about this in particular today. There's this one proverb that just really hits me between the eyes when it comes to this passage. It's uh, from Joshua. It's Proverbs 18:13, And it says this. It says, spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. And the contemporary English version says it's stupid and embarrassing to give an answer before you listen. This incident at the altar in Joshua chapter 22 points out the importance of not jumping to conclusions and making assumptions before you've heard the whole story. Because no matter how careful we are, we can always fail to see the whole picture. Now, I love how this story ends. These these godly people are getting ready to attack their brothers and sisters, but just before they do, notice what happens here. In verse 13. I mean, they're getting ready to go to war. And just before they attack, this is what happens. It says, First, however, they sent a delegation led by Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to talk with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And this delegation were ten leaders of Israel, one from each of the ten tribes, and each of the head of his family within the clans of Israel. So the ten most powerful people in the land are going to go talk to these people on the other side of the river. And then it says in verse 15, When they arrived in the land of Gilead, they said to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, The whole community of the Lord demands to know why you are betraying the God of Israel. How could you turn away from the Lord and build an altar for yourselves in rebellion against Him? Was your sin at Peor not enough? Was our, oh, was our sin at Peor not enough? To this day, we are not fully cleansed of it, even after the plague that struck the entire community of the Lord. And yet today, you are turning away from following the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, they say, He will be angry with all of us tomorrow. If you need the altar because the land you possess is defiled, then join us in the Lord's land where the tabernacle of the Lord is situated and share our land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord and against us by building an altar other than the one true altar of the Lord our God. Don't, or didn't divine anger 
fall on the entire community of Israel when Achan and a member of the clan of Zerah sinned by stealing the things set apart for the Lord. He was not only the one who di- he was not only the one who died because of his sin. So, I mean, imagine this scene for a minute. These ten leaders of the entire nation, kind of like the cabinet of the nation, are going over to basically confront them. And it's clear by now it's a little bit too, too little too late, right? I mean, they're not really trying to seek to understand. They're just letting them have it. I mean, they're like, what's your problem, guys? How could you do this? How could you commit these sins? They haven't taken a moment to actually listen and ask, Hey, what's going on here? We notice there's an altar being built here. And we, kinda, we, we know God's told us we can't do that. And he would judge us if we did. So could you help us understand what you're doing here? I mean, no, they're, they're already getting ready to go to war. They're already blaming and accusing them. And let me just pause there to, here to say, there, there's nothing wrong with being direct. But again, they're assuming the worst here and other godly people and not the best. They're casting judgments without having heard them first, without truly trying to understand, without um, seeking to understand. And it reminds me of uh, of something that one uh, wise mentor uh, told me. It was actually Pastor Duane who will be coming here in a few weeks to start pastoring you. There was one time years ago when he was teaching me how to counsel people who are going through conflict. And the the phrase that he uses over and over again, it's always stuck in my head and I use it all, all the time. He would say, help me understand what led you to make this decision. I don't get what you're doing. I don't get why you would do this. But would you help me understand? Up up until then, I I guess, to be honest, I was prone to say things like, why would you do that? And how could you do that? Kind of like what they're doing right here, right? But he was helping me learn how to rephrase how I talk to people to help understand. Maybe there's a part of this whole situation that I don't get that you can help me understand. So when these people finally stop to take a breath after giving all these accusations and they actually take a moment to listen, listen to what actually the people on the east side of the river have to say to them in verse 21. It says, The people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh answered the heads of the clans of Israel and they said, The Lord, the mighty one, is God. The Lord, the mighty one, is God. He knows the truth and may Israel know it too. We have not built an altar in treacherous rebellion against the Lord. If we have done so, do not spare our lives this day. If we have built an altar for ourselves to turn away from the Lord or to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord himself punish us. The truth is, we have built this altar because we fear that in the future your descendants will say to ours, What right do you have to worship the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. So your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshiping the Lord. So we decided to build an altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a memorial. It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord. So, all this comes from a huge misunderstanding. 
They weren't building an altar for sacrifices. They were simply building a memorial. As we've talked about earlier in this series, they had, they had done several times before. Places that would be visual reminders to, to them and to future generations of God's faithfulness in their past. They actually build it, as, you, as I just read to you, in part to remind themselves and to them, the other tribes on the other side of the river, that they all loved and served the same God and shouldn't let things like this get between them, which is exactly what happens. Now, in the end, the tribes on the west side of the river, these, these ten officials, they, they look at these guys and like, oh, okay, our bad, sorry. And they kind of move on. I guess what you're doing is okay. But my guess is this misunderstanding led to a break in trust. Not because they questioned them, but because they rushed to judgment and assumed the worst before actually taking the time to listen. And understand the whole story. Let me say this morning. Assuming the best in others does not mean avoiding confrontation. It doesn't mean agreeing to act nice around each other. And it doesn't mean just walking away from people either. It means valuing your brother and your sister enough to seek them out and to listen and say, Could you help me understand what's really going on here? Let me show you what I see. What I see... I don't like, but I feel like I need to hear what you have to say in this. Could you help me understand? It means telling yourself and others around you to not rush to judgment. It means confronting from a place of love rather than a place of anger. And it's seeing a relationship as more important than being right. Centuries later, we have... Tons more ways to communicate than the people of Israel did back then. We have all this technology at our fingertips. To, I mean, we can video chat with each other on the other side of the world. But human nature is still the same. And we all still act these ways when we get upset and angry and frustrated, don't we? None of us are immune. We talk to other people and sometimes we can assume the worst. We get hurt. We get offended. We react. And sometimes we make decisions without listening first. This pattern has led to a large and growing group of Christian people today in our country who have walked away and are done with church altogether. They actually, are now, they actually have a label called the, the Duns. And it's not because they have a lack of faith in God, but, but they're frustrated about the way God's people treat each other. People who feel spurned by people in the church and mistakenly think that it's better to avoid God's people than learn to grow with them. There's a guy named Tom Schultz who uh, is the founder of Group Publishing. Group Publishing is the organization that produces all of the VBS materials we use every year. And this guy, Tom Schultz, founded this organization. And he spent years doing research into this segment of people known as the Duns in our country, trying to understand what is happening here Why are all these people who have been raised in the church just walking away from church angry and frustrated and not coming back? And he's found that there are four things that can be done in the church to prevent this from happening in the future. He calls it four acts of love. Um, In fact, if you're interested in this, the link to this book and the article is actually in your online sermon notes today. But two of the four acts of love he talks about that will change things in his mind in the church and prevent this from happening is, number one, fearless conversation. 
And number two, genuine humility. Now, I just want to wrap up this morning by saying, I get it. None of us wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'm just not going to like that person anymore. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to choose to assume the worst about them. All right? none, of us, none of us do that, right? We wouldn't do that. But the thing is, it is so easy for us, especially me, to get into fight or flight mode rather than when we have someone offend us to take the time and to truly just listen and seek to understand, right? I think so. And I think we do that sometimes at great cost to those who can otherwise be very close to us and help us walk closer to God. I'll close by uh, sharing with you a quote that I just read just a few days ago from Christianity Today that really spoke to me about this whole thing. It's a guy by the name of Carl Vaders who has a blog on that site. And he wrote this last year. He said, When I put myself in the role of assuming someone else's motives, I've put myself in the very dangerous position of assuming knowledge that belongs to God alone, since He is the only one who knows anyone's heart. I will not ignore... Evidence to the contrary, but until that evidence presents itself overwhelmingly and persistently, I will assume that you, as a person who claims to follow Jesus, are in fact what you claim to be. And that makes you family. Sooner or later, each and every one of us in this room, we're going to get hurt. We're going to get hurt sometimes by even godly people. Maybe, Maybe they meant to do what they did. Maybe not, but may each of us strive as God's people to see the best in others, to see the best in our coworkers when they rub us the wrong way, to see the best in our bosses or our family, our friends, and especially, especially those who choose to follow Jesus and have committed to walking the path that Jesus has called us to, right? Because trusting God involves trusting people, too. It involves seeing the best in them until we are proven otherwise by them. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just want to thank you for this uh, time in in the Word today from Joshua. Lord, so far through this series in the beginning verses or beginning chapters of Joshua, you've made it so clear about how we are to live by faith and stretch ourselves. But Lord, now today you're starting to show us the things that we can do that might trip us up and trip others up from living a life by faith. God, I thank you for this whole book and the wealth that it has to teach us about these things. And God, I pray that each one of us, that you would stretch us, that you would continue to mold us, even when it hurts, even when it makes us uncomfortable. May we be a body of believers who love each other well, not just love our community at large well in Oral Valley. Lord, if we can't model this well among ourselves, how can we do this in our community and world? So Lord, I ask that you would help each one of us, including me, in those moments when life gets hard and we are hurt or when we're offended and when people say and do things in our families or at work or wherever we might be that can cause us to flinch and to reel back. Help us, Lord, to see your perspective and to see theirs as well. Lord, give us long-suffering. Help us to see the way of Jesus through learning to listen well, even when everything in us wants to just give up and walk away. And Lord, may we be an example 
to others around us in how we do that. So that other people's faith are bolstered and grows through the example that we're able to set in difficult times like that. In Jesus' name.